0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, O Lord, we pause to acknowledge that You are beyond anything that we can ever imagine or comprehend, that, Father, You are majestic and glorious. We thank You for the fact that You have invited us into a relationship with You through Jesus Christ. And we pray that even today, as we extol and magnify your Son through the preaching and application of your Word, that you would give us hearts that are sensitive and teachable. Help us, Father, to remove distractions from our minds and from our thoughts. Help us to be people who are eager hearers of your Word, um, those who meditate upon your Scripture, so that we might apply your Word to our thoughts and to our lives and to our words, to our priorities, to the way we even interact Um, with this world. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29 is our text for this morning. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And if you're able to stand um, with me there from home, please do so as we read God's Word together, okay? Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, "O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy began, became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You know, our passage falls very strategically after two key texts in Mark. The first one is in chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, as we've seen, where the Gospel of Mark really answers three questions about Jesus for us. One, who is he? And Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The second one is, why did he come? Why did Jesus come? He came to suffer and die for sins. And what does he demand of those who want to follow after him? namely that they would deny themselves, take up their cross and follow after him. Key text is the turning the climactic hinge passage in the Gospel of Mark and then in Mark chapter 9 verses 1 through 13 we're given a a glimpse, a sneak peek of the glory of Christ and we're reminded and encouraged as people who study this gospel uh, by the wonderful uh, of the wonderful reality that One day Jesus will return in the fullness of His glory, and we will be glorified with Him. Two wonderful passages that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark. But now in the aftermath of that turning point hinge passage in Mark, Mark chapter 8 verses 27 through 38, Jesus in the second half of the Gospel of Mark is resolutely um, headed to the cross. He's fixated, focused upon heading to the cross. This is approximately six months before the events of Passion Week that we are studying here. And so with this purpose in mind of him headed to the cross, Jesus' focus, note, is on preparing his disciples for his suffering, for his death, and for his resurrection. In fact, they're having a very hard time with this, aren't they? They were expecting this this Messiah who would come, who would be a political deliverer. And Jesus is now trying to get these disciples, as He heads to the cross, to understand that His purpose is to be delivering people from sin, first and foremost, as He dies on the cross for the sins of the world. They've confessed Him as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, but they are far from arriving at a perfect knowledge and understanding of Him, or especially of His purpose to deliver people from sin by dying on the cross, by suffering. And so far from a finished product, you need to understand, these disciples are being prepared. Their faith is developing. Their faith is still growing. And I think that Mark places this account very strategically here to show us how the Lord Jesus continued to prepare His disciples by growing their faith so that they would be prepared to be the foundational pillars of the church that would be birthed at Pentecost. And I might add, I think Mark includes this account in here, so that our faith might grow. So that our faith might mature. You see, brothers and sisters, this passage is so helpful for us because, like our Lord's disciples, we too want to be people of faith, don't we? We haven't arrived. If the events currently, that we're currently facing have shown us anything, it's that we have not arrived our faith is not as mature, not as strong as we would like it to be by the grace of God. I know I feel that way as we're facing uh, so many uncertain things in this world right now. And so this is very, very helpful passage for us to be looking at this morning. You know, this week, um, I have a friend who posted this on social media. He writes the following. Just, as I ne- just so I never forget, he writes, April 3rd, 2020. Gas prices were 189 or 169 in some places. Schools are canceled. Yes, canceled. Self-distancing measures are on the rise. Tape on the floors at grocery stores and others to help distance shoppers six feet from each other. Limited number of people inside stores, therefore lineups outside the store hours. Non-essential stores and businesses mandated closed. Parks, trails, entire cities locked up. Entire sports seasons canceled. All of us say, oh man, that's one of the worst things, right? No NBA, no MLB, all sports canceled. Concerts, tours, festivals, entertainment events canceled. Weddings, family celebrations, holiday gatherings canceled. Funerals limited to a specific number and being live streamed. No masses. Churches are all closed, even during Easter season. No gatherings of 50 or more, than 20 or more, now 10 or more. And even in this, you're being encouraged to limit this to immediate family. Don't socialize with anyone outside of your home. Children's outdoor play parks are closed. We are a distance from each other six feet. Shortage of masks, gowns, gloves for our frontline workers. Shortage of ventilators for the critically ill. Panic buying uh, panic buying sets in and we have no toilet paper no disinfecting supplies no paper towel no laundry soap no hand sanitizer shelves are bare hard to find beef eggs milk sending one family member to shop manufacturers distilleries and other businesses switch their lines to help uh, make visors masks sanitizers and ppe Government closes the border to all non essential travel. Fines are established for breaking the rules. Stadiums and recreation facilities open up for the overflow of COVID 19 patients. Big industries help make more ventilators and more masks for hospitals. Press conferences daily from the president and the governess. Daily updates on new cases, recoveries, and deaths. Government incentives to stay home. Barely anyone on the roads. People wearing masks and gloves outside and everywhere. Essential service workers are terrified to go to work. Medical field workers are afraid to go home to their families. This, he writes, is the novel coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic declared March 11th, 2020. And then my friend says this. Why, you ask, do I write this status? Because one day it will show up in my memory feed and it will be a yearly reminder that life is precious and not to take the things we dearly love for granted. Hugs, social interaction like the real kind versus the Zoom kind, sitting in a restaurant or in a coffee shop with a friend or family, Sunday church, Friday night, family night. We truly have so much. Be grateful, be thankful, be kind to each other, love one another, support everyone, copy and share. Amazing. Great reminder, isn't it? To count our blessings, to not take life for granted, but also how important To be people, beloved Christians who are living a life of faith, of trusting God. And I don't know about you, but living by faith has been a challenge right now for sure for me. And I'm sure it has been for you as well. Living by faith is a challenge. And what I want us to consider this morning is that living by faith isn't even about the strength of your faith or my faith. Living by faith Rather, is about the strength of our God, who is the object of our faith. We don't put our trust in our faithfulness, which ebbs and flows, doesn't it? I'm sure you've already experienced that. We put our faith in the faithful one who never changes, who is always faithful, who is flawless and perfect, namely our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the faithful one. So what I want us to consider this morning is what does living by faith look like as Christians? And I think that if we look at this account of the healing of a young boy, we learn some valuable lessons about living a life of faith. As we look at some movements here in this particular passage, we're going to learn some lessons about faith that we're going to highlight as we go. We see, first of all, the bittersweet reunion in verses 14 and 15. Jesus, if you remember, has been up on the Mount of Transfiguration, probably Mount Hermon, with his inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they make their descent down the mountain, about a day's um, walk. And it was supposed to be a sweet reunion when they come down to the base of the mountain and see the other nine disciples who stayed at the bottom. But instead, it's a bitter moment. Because when they arrive, there's this large crowd surrounding the nine disciples, And the scribes, who are the experts in the law of Moses, they're in the middle of a heated argument with the nine disciples. And we're going to find out why. In the middle of this conflict, Jesus arrives to the base of the mountain. And if you notice in verse 15, it says that immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. As soon as they see Jesus arrive, they're amazed, they're they're shocked, they're startled. Jesus' appearance was sudden and unexpected. It's like they were starstruck, right? Like when we see a famous person out on the street, maybe somewhere public or an athlete or a movie star, an entertainer, somebody who is a, a main attraction, and we're, we're shocked and we're, we're startled and we're amazed. This is kind of the idea here. The main attraction has shown up, and that's initially why they probably came looking For the disciples in the first place, because wherever the disciples are, Jesus is. So now he's shown up. Now he's here, the main attraction. And you know, people always seem to be interestingly drawn to Jesus, aren't they? I don't know about you, but probably no other name that I've mentioned to people over the course of my lifetime gets more of a reaction than when I talk to people about the name of Jesus, No other name, we might make the argument, is more malign than the name of Jesus. But there's this interesting curiosity always surrounding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout history. This was the case during the time that he was walking on earth, during his humanity. And this is the case even today. And by the way, may I remind us that this is especially true, brothers and sisters, during times like the present times, times of crises. People are prone to want to talk about God, to want to talk about Jesus. I experienced this the other day. I was talking to a, a bank teller over the phone about an issue with our bank. And eventually, um, we were able to, be, to start talking, me and this person, about the current situation and all of that. And they asked me, well, hey, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. And you would think that they would have run the opposite direction, right, on the phone, Or wanting to hang up that person wanted to start asking me questions about jesus and what do you think about jesus during these times like what exactly um what do you think about the people say that god is in control biblical christianity and all of that and it was a wonderful conversation an evangelistic conversation with this person because they wanted to talk about jesus christ in the midst of trial in the midst of the crises that is taking place oh we have to be so so intentional And so aware right now and sensitive to those divine appointments that God would have for us, brothers and sisters. You know, it struck me as I was thinking about this text uh, just a couple of weeks ago that we are in the year of evangelism as as a church. And I don't know about you, but as we were talking about 2020 being the year of evangelism, I remember praying for God to give us many opportunities as a church to share the gospel. And I know that many of you talked about how you were praying that God in 2020 would give us many opportunities to share the gospel. Well, has he not answered our prayers? He absolutely has in more ways than we could ever even imagine. And so we have to be mindful and deliberate that during these times, people are curious about the things of the Lord. People are curious about this Jesus and so what an opportunity that we can seize upon to talk about the great realities of heaven and, and hell and life and death and bring the hope of Christ to bear upon people that they might put their trust in this one who died for sins, who rose from the dead. So there's this bittersweet reunion here where Jesus and his inner three go from the elation of the transfiguration to the reality of a broken and fallen world. From this mountaintop experience to the dark valley of the reality of a fallen, broken world. And the question is, what was the argument about? What was the argument about? Secondly, let's look at the disappointing revelation. The disappointing revelation. The source of conflict is revealed here, and it's disappointing specifically to our Lord Jesus. Verse 16, and he asked them, specifically his nine disciples, what are you discussing with them? the scribes what are you discussing with the scribes what's the argument all about absolute silence crickets until verse 17 one of the crowd answered him teacher i brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute matthew 17:14 the parallel account says that the man was so desperate that he fell at Jesus' feet, kneeling, Lord, or Master, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. And Luke 9, 38, the other parallel account, says that the man shouted out. This was his only boy. His only boy was demon-possessed. He had been taken control um, by this demon, and the demon had taken control of his vocal cords so that he was mute and deaf. He could not speak, and he could not Here, this young boy, this demon would torture this young boy day and night. Look at verse 18. And whenever it, the demon, seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. This demon would violently and forcefully get a hold of this young boy, slam him to the ground like a wrestler so that he would foam at the mouth, grind his teeth and stiffen out like a pole. How violent this was! He wanted to destroy this boy. So excruciating this was that Luke nine thirty nine says that when the spirit would seize, this demon would seize this poor boy. The boy would scream, he would howl and screech like one of those orcs in Lord of the Rings. This demon would throw him into convulsions, so that he would be shaking, rolling around on the floor, of, excuse me, violently. Imagine what he looked like, this boy. Imagine how disfigured he probably was. Imagine how bruised he was. Probably resembled one of those zombies, right, that we watch. Just disfigured, no longer recognizable. Because of some of the symptoms, some skeptics have concluded that this was a simple issue of epilepsy. The seizures, the convulsions, the foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, stiffening like a board, falling on the ground, etc. are all a simple case of epilepsy, people say. And certainly this boy suffered from such symptoms. But it's clear from the passage in our text that this was specifically caused and exacerbated by this demon. To be clear, not all people who suffer from epilepsy or sickness are demon-possessed, but this boy, our text tells us, was. He was under the control and dominance of dark spiritual forces. And brothers and sisters, may we never forget that spiritual warfare is a reality. Spiritual warfare is a reality that satanic and demonic oppression were red hot, strong during our Lord's first coming because the Messiah had arrived on the scene and there was a full onslaught by Satan against Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his work that he was offering. But it's just as alive and well today. It may be more hidden and subtle. But we must never be naive or foolish so as to think the satanic attacks are no longer a reality and no longer in effect. They are absolutely in effect. This is why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That the battle is a spiritual battle. And by the way, that, exo- that verse, Ephesians 6, 10 and following, follows instructions about how we ought to function in our home, which, which was after instructions about how to function in unity as a body of Christ and how to walk in holiness and all of that. So why does Paul finish the book of Ephesians by talking about spiritual warfare? It is this, because Satan doesn't want you to love your spouse in the home. That's an issue of spiritual warfare. Satan doesn't want you, husband, father, to lead in your home. Satan doesn't want you, wife or mother, to function being submissive to your husband in the home. Helping train up your children in the home. Satan doesn't want us to walk in unity. Satan doesn't want us to love one another. Satan doesn't want us to walk in holiness, putting off sin and putting on Christ by the grace of God. So Paul says, Recognize in the midst of all of these instructions, your battle is ultimately a spiritual warfare battle. But, he also says there, you can resist. You can stand firm, Christian. You can stand firm, believer. How? By depending upon God's spiritual armor and depending upon Him in continual prayer. You see, the life of faith is lived not in our own strength, but in God's strength, not by our own resources, but utilizing God's resources, not in dependence upon ourselves being self-sufficient, but depending upon the Lord in prayer who extends his power to us. And in fact, it seems that our Lord's disciples had forgotten who their dependence was. Desperate to help his only son, this poor father had brought his boy to the disciples and they had been unable to help him. Look at verse 18. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Jesus had given them power to do this. He had sent them out before to cast out demons. The question is, what happened? Perhaps they had forgotten about the nature of the battle that they faced, that it was a battle of spiritual warfare. Well, this failure prompts a rebuke from our Lord. Notice thirdly, the pointed rebuke in verse 19. Upon hearing of his disciples' failure, it says that Jesus answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Someone has commented that this is holy aspiration here. Exasperation. Holy exasperation. Full of emotion and exasperation, Jesus rebukes his whole generation, the crowds, the self-righteous scribes, the boy's father, and even his own disciples. Why? Because they are unbelieving. They are a faithless generation and characterized by faithlessness. I mean, he's been doing miracles in this area for about a year and for more than two years total, and yet they are faithless in his ability to do this. He says, how long shall I be with you? The Lord is weary and worn out by them. And how long shall I put up with you? The picture is of someone holding a, a heavy load. Jesus is tired of carrying and of enduring with this un, these unbelieving people. Oh, unbelieving generation. You know, he would say the same thing to our world today. We are living in a country and in a world full of people who have turned their backs on the one true God of the Bible. We are living in a generation full of unbelieving people who have suppressed the truth of the one true God in their unrighteousness and ungodliness, Romans 1, and instead created a God of their own creation and worshipped other philosophies, anti-God philosophies. We're living in a godless Unbelieving generation. I mean, and you would think again that people would cry out to God right now, and there are those who are doing that. But more than anything else, what we see even in our culture today, especially here in our country, is people looking for someone to blame for the things that are happening in our in our country. It's the president's fault. It's the government's fault that we're experiencing this. It's China's fault. It's Europe's fault. Hey, it's the healthcare care system that is not cutting it. People are looking for someone to blame because you know what the mentality is in America? This should not be happening to the United States. We are immune to this kind of stuff. We are invincible. May I remind us, brothers and sisters, that we are not in control as much as we thought we were in our country. And God is reminding us of that right now. Instead of finding blame, We need to realize that God is speaking to our generation, calling our generation to repent of our sins, to acknowledge that we have rebelled and sinned against a holy and righteous creator. We have not lived for his glory. We have lived for our own glory, for our own self-indulgence, for our own sin, worshiping ourselves rather than worshiping the one true God. We have rebelled and sinned against him. And yet there is good news, isn't there? There's good news that even though we're guilty, every single one of us guilty and condemned because of our sin, there is Christ. God in human flesh who came to live the perfect life that we could never ever live because God's standard is absolute perfection, absolute holiness. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins on the cross as a perfect, blameless, spotless lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. Wow. So there's good news so that God says to the whole world right now, if you call upon the name of the Lord and put your faith in my son, the one who is a sin bearer and the wrath absorber who has absorbed the judgment that you deserve for your sin, you can receive eternal life. You can be reconciled to God. You can be forgiven of your sins, unbelieving generation. Bring him to me, he says in verse 19. I love that. What an example of our Lord's relentless love and enduring grace that even in the midst of his grieving because of a crooked and perverse generation, he still reaches out to sinners, to people who are faithless. God's love is an enduring and relentless love, isn't it? He says, bring him to me. And they brought him to him. I submit to you that this is what makes biblical Christianity different from all other religions and belief systems in the world. You know what it is? It's called grace. Grace. We don't deserve Christ's mercy. We cannot earn his favor by our own good deeds, but he is gracious to each and every one of us. God awaits those who humble themselves, broken over their sins, and put their trust in Jesus Christ. He extends unmerited, undeserved favor for those who are broken over their sin, who cry out to Him in desperation, Lord, forgive me, Lord, reconcile me to Yourself through Your Son, Jesus Christ. God is ready to forgive. God is ready to restore. I love 2 Chronicles 7.14, specifically to the nation of Israel, but I think it, it reflects the heart of God. My, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Wow, the heart of God. The heart of God for, the, for those who are broken over their sin, who cry out to him for his mercy and for his grace. And in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says the Lord. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's the heart of Christ. This is the message, beloved, that we need to take to a lost world right now. It's looking for answers in mostly all of the wrong places. Only Christ can satisfy. Only Christ, in Christ, can somebody find rest for their soul. Not only in this life, but more so eternally speaking. As our Lord is about to heal this young boy, we see the reaction. The deadly reaction, fourthly, in verses 20 to 22. Notice in verse 20, they brought the boy to him. And when he, the boy who is demon-possessed, saw him, saw Jesus, immediately the Spirit threw him, threw the boy into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Well, this is what always happens, right? Whenever Jesus encounters demons, it seems that any time that he confronts demons, there's a strong reaction from, from the spiritual forces of wickedness. Crying out, shouting out, What business do we have with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. There's a strong reaction from spiritual forces. And here's one last stand by this particular vicious spirit where he violently casts this young man to the ground so that he begins rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth. The demon knows that his dominance over this boy is done, but he strikes one last time in an effort to destroy this poor young boy. Again, it's always the case that whenever God is doing something good, there's always opposition and resistance from the kingdom of darkness, right? Always resistance. Satan, who disguises himself as an angel of light, hates Christ. He resists everything that God wants to do in a person's life. And listen, if you and I are going to be people who live by faith, then we need to live as believers expecting that there will be opposition expecting that there will be resistance to the will of God in our lives. Did you know that there's a spiritual battle going on right now for you? Even as a believer, even though we're protected by the power of God, we can never lose our salvation. Certainly there are attacks upon your mind, upon your thinking right now. Are you going to be driven by the things that are that are coming out from the news? Are you going to be shaped in your thinking, in your mind, in your thoughts by all the bad news coming out every single day, lies and deception for the most part, and exaggeration galore? Or are you going to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ as you saturate your mind in Christ's Word? Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it make its home in your heart. There's a battle, Christian, for our minds right now for our thinking, for our thoughts. Did you know that there's a battle for your time right now? For your priorities? I mean, we would think as believers, as I've been interacting with many of you and seeing the struggles in my own heart and life, that we would seize upon this opportunity that we are in quarantine, in isolation, to do all of the profitable things that we always say, if I had more time, I would do that. But it's amazing how because of our own sin and our own flesh, we are struggling with idleness, right? Laziness, licentiousness, running to lust, giving into anger. We all have our escapes, don't we? Listen, don't waste your uh, isolation right now. Don't waste this time where you can be in sweet communion with God, spending time in His Word and in prayer, talking to Him, reading things that are edifying, biographies of those who finished the race well as Christians. Times where you can spend with your family, investing into your spouse, investing into your kids, young or older, or for you grandparents, investing into your kids and grandkids now. Times when we can utilize right now to reach out to the lost, those people that we've never been able to to reach out to because of whatever hindrance, now they might be ripe to hear about Jesus Christ. Don't waste this time of isolation. There's always resistance when God's will is being accomplished in our lives by spiritual forces, and we even see that even now. Now, this is important. I want you to notice this. The Lord is going to heal this young boy But before he heals him, I want you to notice how he engages the boy's father and enters into his world. Look at verse 21. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Now, why does Jesus ask him this? I mean, he could just heal him already and it's all done. The miracle is all done. Why does he ask him this question in verse 21? Is he asking him because he doesn't know the answer to this? I don't think so. I think Jesus is asking this man this question because he wants to draw him in in a personal way. The glorious Christ was so compassionate, as we're seeing in Mark, so caring, That he constantly sought to enter a person's world. How did he do this? By asking probing, open-ended questions to draw people out and in so doing enter into their world and their plight and their pain. I love this about our Lord and his humanity. Oh, how we need to grow in this area, don't we? Especially during these challenging times. Again, when people are troubled and hurting And they're especially vulnerable and transparent. We must be wise counselors, brothers and sisters. Wise counselors who minister to people where they're at. Not afraid of having conversations over the phone now. Entering into people's world, into their story. Our Lord Jesus modeled this for us in his humanity. He was a people person, wasn't he? And so here he's drawing out this father's hopelessness. Verse 21, the father answers from childhood, he says. My boy has been in this condition for a long time. Long has been the journey of this hopeless hardship. And then notice he expands. This father expands in verse 22 and it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Now please take a note of this. All Jesus asked asked him was how long has this been happening? But the dad goes beyond the basic answer to sharing his heart with Jesus and his plight. Isn't this what happens when people are hurting and hopeless? If you just ask in a genuinely caring way, they begin to pour out their hearts to you, don't they? Oh, our Lord knew how to draw people out because he genuinely cared and he was concerned for people. According to verse 22, this demon had repeatedly tried to destroy his son. Destroy his son. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. In those days, there were open wells for people to draw water out, and there were open fires for people to to cook or to burn their trash or waste out in the open. If you've been to third world countries, you've seen some of this. I grew up in the slums of Mexico City as a kid, and we burned our waste or trash out in in open fires like that. And there were wells that other people from America had come in to build so that we would have clean water. So these things, wells and open fires were out in the open. It's similar here. And notice, this vicious demon would suddenly and violently throw this poor young boy into the water or into the fire in an effort to kill him, in an effort to destroy him. I mean, can you imagine the journey that this father has been on? Imagine if you were that boy's parent. You love your boy, but you constantly live in fear of your boy being fatally injured beyond repair. You are exhausted from being constantly alarmed, constantly protecting your son from, from getting killed. You never leave his side. There's never rest for you because you're afraid for his life. And there's a social side of things. Imagine how disheartened you'd be from people constantly staring at your beloved son Imagine the stigma and ostracism your whole family receives. They were social outcasts, to say the least. Wow, it's been a hard journey. And yet, behold the glorious compassion of Christ for this man and his boy. Christ cares for them. They weren't just another badge on his perfect record of healing. Jesus viewed these people with love and genuine caring concern. Bring him to me. And beloved, how quickly we forget, how quickly we forget that this portrait of Christ that we see here, this is the glorious Christ that we have put our trust in. And if living by faith means anything as believers, is that we must constantly return to the Word of God and behold the glorious Christ and these portraits of Him so that we would be reminded in the midst of our plight and uncertain times that He genuinely cares for us and is concerned for us as well. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's not indifferent to our pain or distant. I love Matthew 10.30 which says that the very hairs on our heads are numbered. So three different times it says there, so do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And in Psalm 139 and verse 3, it says that he's, God is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He knows us perfectly. He fashioned us in the womb. He knows us perfectly, and yet He loves us. He loves us. He is for us in Christ. Oh, this should give great substance to our faith. Amen? Great substance. Our gracious and loving high priest is the object of our faith. Again, we don't put our trust in our faithfulness, our performance, our deficient service. We are imperfect people striving by the grace of God to walk in holiness. We put our trust in the faithful one, Christ, the glorious Christ. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. This is why Hebrews 4.16 tells us to, to go boldly when we're struggling, to go boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And 1 Peter 5.7 tells us to cast our anxieties upon Him. Why? Because He cares for us. This caring concerning Christ is a supreme object of our faith. He's the same Christ who enters into the world of a desperate, hopeless father. Now notice fifth, the humble response. The humble response. This man who by faith had come to the Lord's disciples, who had failed to help his son, now he comes directly to Jesus, but not fully confident that Jesus can help either, right? But, please note, he comes. He comes to Jesus, desperate and needy, interceding for his son. Notice verse 22. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Pity is a strong word there that literally refers to one's inner bowels, to feeling a deep sense of mercy, of compassion, to feel pity. This man comes as a needy beggar. Notice he says, take pity on us help us the father identifies himself with his son to show pity to the to the son would be to show pity to the father to deliver the son would be to deliver the father himself and so he comes to jesus desperate and needy but the problem is he does so without doubt, jesus is going to expose him and i want you to pay attention to this jesus would often heal regardless of a person's faith i mean he literally did hundreds and maybe thousands of miracles during his earthly life he would heal regardless of faith sometimes but here he calls this man out on his weak faith doesn't he look at verse 23 and jesus said to him if you can translation what do you mean if guy what do you mean can i I mean, Jesus has been doing miracles for two plus years. He's proven his power, hasn't he? If you can. And then he adds, all things are possible to him who believes. In other words, Jesus says, the question is not, do I have the power and ability to do this? The question is, do you trust me that I can do it? Do you believe that I can do it? As a side note, false teachers in the so-called word of faith movement have often looked at this text and, and said things like, See, if you, if you have faith, person, if you have faith, then you can be healed. No suffering, no pain. You just have to have faith. And they put all of the emphasis on the individual human being, on a person's faith. It's a man-centered interpretation, isn't it? But that's not Jesus' point here jesus has healed before again regardless of a person's faith just to be compassionate just to be kind to reveal his person to people jesus doesn't need anyone to activate his power anything jesus does for people is out of a heart of grace not because anyone needs to do something for him as if our faith has some inherent energy to activate the power of god By Jesus lovingly rebuking this boy's father, what is he doing here? I think he wants to expose him and grow him. Notice verse 24. The father's response, verse 24. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. In other words, I do have faith. He had shown that, hadn't he? Weak, albeit weak, tiny faith, small faith. He came to the disciples. They could not cast out. The demon out of his boy. Then he cried out from the midst of the crowd and begged Jesus from the midst of these massive crowds pleading for his son. He had come to Jesus. He had faith, albeit small, tiny faith, but he had it. But this is so important in verse 24. Notice, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Wow. This man humbles himself before the lord of the universe help my unbelief lord i haven't arrived strengthen my tiny weak faith i'm not where i need to be help me see it wasn't that this man had it all together brothers and sisters that his faith was mature or even perfect It was that in weak faith, he came to Jesus for help, and then he humbly admitted that he needed Jesus to grow and mature his faith. Oh, it's similar with us, isn't it? Right now, in the midst of everything going on, you may feel that your faith is very weak, very small. I know I felt that way in many moments. You know, it's okay to admit that to your heavenly Father. Lord, I am weak in faith. Lord, I've got nothing left. I'm anxious, I'm worried, I'm fearful. Lord, I haven't arrived. I need your help. Lord, strengthen my faith as I spend time in your word. And I'm reminded of who you are on the pages of your word. Strengthen my faith as I interact with my brothers and sisters who are going to encourage me and point me to who you are and the glories of the gospel and the hope that I have in Jesus Christ beyond this passing world. Lord, help me grow my faith. See, the issue is not for us to pretend that we have it all together. Too many of us are like that. We want to put on a facade for other people to see that you're you're strong and holy and mighty and you never struggle with anything. You never share about about any struggles with sin. Struggles with your faith. We need to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves before the Lord and before one another. Lord, help my unbelief. Grow me. Grow me. F.B. Meyer Commons that though this man had small faith there are some things to glean from this man's faith one it was heartfelt faith that he came with not superficial it was heartfelt faith he comes with a deep sense of heartfelt emotion and need he's no fake he's no pretender here he can't be around all of those people it was immediate faith Not procrastinating, vacillating faith. He comes to Jesus right away, though he's struggling. He knows he doesn't have his ducks in a row, but he comes, doesn't he? He comes. This is what we must do. Come in our weakness to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. It's unconditional faith. I do believe not if you help me, Lord, then I will do this or that or I will trust you. No conditions. It was bold, wasn't Wasn't it? Bold faith. He came for help despite the stigma, despite the ostracism, and threw himself at the mercy of Jesus, begging as a desperate beggar for his help. It was humble faith. Humble and desperate faith. Lord, help my unbelief. I need to grow. I know I'm weak. Strengthen me, Lord. Help me, Lord. And last and most important, May we not forget his faith had the right object who is the glorious Christ. Christ was the object of his faith. It isn't ever about the greatness of our faith. It's about the greatness and the glory of the object of our faith, King Jesus. Amen? Sinclair Ferguson writes, quote, Better to have little or weak faith in a big God than to have great faith in no God or a weak God. End quote. I love that. Better to, to have weak faith in an all-powerful Christ than to have no faith at all, or to have faith in a false idol, a God that doesn't exist. So Christ is a supreme object of our faith. This man comes to Christ, comes to Christ. Well, notice sixth, the powerful rescue, the powerful rescue. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering throughout Mark, it's clear Jesus doesn't want superficial publicity. So as this mob begins to form, he quickly acts. He rebuked the unclean spirit, verse 25, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, literally, I myself emphatically, I myself command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. We've seen this type of authority before, haven't we? With full authority, as a sovereign Lord of the universe, Jesus commands the demon to get out. Two authoritative commands. Come out of him and do not enter him again. Wow. Christ, unrivaled in his power, unrivaled in his authority, he is glorious. And how comforting it must have been to this Father that never again, according to the words of Jesus, would this demon return. Never again. But notice, not without a fight, right? Verse 26, after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. The demon horribly screeches and in a final act of rage, violently shakes this boy one last time. And the effect was so intense that it says in verse 26 that the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. Remember, Peter was Mark's eyewitness. So Peter is describing this to Mark. Everybody thought that the kid was dead. People thought he had died. Verse 27. But, I love those little words. Here's what Jesus did. That's what people thought. But here's what Jesus did in verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. One commentator says, The same Jesus who has the power to command the devil has the tenderness to raise the boy. The Lord Jesus tenderly, gently takes him by the hand and gives him to his Father, fully healed. Wow. Who can do this, brothers or sisters? Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, the glorious one on the Mount of Transfiguration. And don't miss this. This is first and foremost another example of the unrivaled power of Jesus Christ that when he heals, different from the so-called faith healers, he heals immediately, completely, and permanently. That's the power of his healing. It's not a process with Jesus. No bells and whistles, just sheer lordship and authority and power at work over every realm of his universe. And secondly, this should strengthen our faith, shouldn't it? By faith, you and I must be convinced that no situation that we ever face is beyond the greatness of the power of Christ. So that, hear me. If God has not presently taken away our present sufferings or trials or testings, then we know that it's not because he doesn't have the power to do it. It's because he's got a specific purpose to glorify himself as he conforms us into the image of his son through the present trials that we're experiencing. Amen? Everything that we're experiencing is for his glory and for our good. God glorifying says nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for Christ. Because to say otherwise is to make a statement about Him, about His power, about His faithfulness, about His ability, His love, His care, His goodness. God can do anything. So if He's allowing us to go through something, He's got a particular purpose, ultimately for His glory and for our good. Bank on it based upon His unchanging character. I love... Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 where Paul extols the power of God Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Amazing. The power of Christ. One final lesson specifically for his disciples and thus for us who are his followers as well. Number seven. The essential requirement. The essential requirement. What's the punchline here? What went wrong? The disciples are still aching from the stinging reality that they had failed. They had previously been able to cast out demons. But in this instance, what happened? Verse 28, when he came, Jesus came into the house. His disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? How come we couldn't do as before? What was the problem, Lord? And he said to them in verse 29, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Some think that this kind means that this demon was of a kind more powerful than any demon they had come across. That's one possible view. But I think that he's speaking here of demons in general. This kind of miracle requiring them to cast out a demon requires absolute dependence upon God. And isn't that what prayer reflects? Prayer is communion with God and prayer is our acknowledgement that apart from Him, we can do nothing. Nothing. And here's the lesson for them and for us. Apparently, they had taken their power for granted. After all, they've done this before. Maybe this was automatic. What could possibly go wrong? This is our chance to prove ourselves when our Lord isn't around. But in the Lord's absence, they had become self-dependent Trusting in their own ability as if it was automatic. Boy, we can identify with this, right? In the Christian life, we become self-sufficient, self-dependent, trusting in our own strength to live the Christian life. And then what happens? We fall flat on our faces. There's spiritual failure because we've stopped trusting in God, living in dependence upon Him. We've ceased to seek His faith for divine strengthening and grace. Maturing, growing faith is seen in a life of consistent prayer. Consistent prayer. I love what Daniel Henderson says. Prayerlessness is our subtle declaration of independence from God. It shows that we think we can live the Christian life by our own strength. You see, it's not just the so-called prayer warriors of the church who should be people of prayer, right? It's every single one of us. And can I say this to you? It isn't that our faith is in our prayers. We don't even put our trust in our prayers. We put our trust in God, and thus we pray and seek his face. He's the object of our faith and our trust. Spurgeon writes, Satan trembles when the weakest Christian is on his knees praying, End quote. Brother or sister, how much, during this present crisis, have you sought the face of God? How much have you, by the grace of God and by the strength that the Spirit of God provides, have you sought the face of God and, and asked Him for help and strength in the midst of the current testings? How much have you been praying for your spiritual health? That of your marriage, that of your family, that of your kids, that of our church, that of the gospel being, having an impact in the world at large? How much have you been seeking the face of God? This is why we're doing our Wednesday night praise and prayer nights, because we need to be seeking the face of God more than anything else right now. Amen. We cannot do anything on our own strength. We dare not do anything on our own strength. We need the Lord. And so these disciples were powerless because they had been prayerless. This is what the text tells us. And yet this boy's father had shown dependent faith, albeit weak faith, but he was willing to admit it. So beloved, humble, dependent faith in him, shown in prayerfulness, is what the Lord required of his disciples and what he requires of us. And remember, the issue is not the littleness of our faith, but the greatness of the object of our faith, who is our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me close this with a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. I've been reading Ian Murray's biography of Charles Spurgeon. And this quote was so encouraging from the mouth of C.H. Spurgeon. Listen to what he says. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It's not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ himself. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Father, help us to be people of faith people who put our trust in the faithful one and to be reminded of the fact that no matter what happens in this life that we already have rest in Christ if we have put our faith in him we pray in Jesus name amen scripture quotations taken from the new american standard bible copyright by the lockman foundation